So I remember the first time that I learned I couldn't trust everyone. I'm not sure if you remember, but, but for me, I was young and a friend went behind my back and told somebody else about a struggle that I had told them about. I confided in this first person and then they went and they broke my trust. The second person, then they came and they turned that pain against me and I found myself under fire from them. Uh, the conversation had originally been about how I was processing hurt and, and I hadn't actually meant it to be about anyone else. And yet here they came acting as if my hurt was somehow hurting them. Uh, we were young and we were immature and I doubt that they were doing it intentionally. But I felt like I was being told that my own judgment wasn't trustworthy and instead somehow I was the one causing the pain that was causing me pain. And, and, and then I was doubly hurt because that first person, I wasn't sure if I could even trust them any longer. And I found myself not sure if I could even trust myself. Was my, was my own perception of reality even right? And for a while afterwards, I found myself being very guarded. You know, have you ever had a similar experience to that? Have you ever had your trust just completely broken or been told that your own broken heart is not real or that your pain is your own fault? I think most of us learn to guard our hearts when we're young. You know, and in many ways, that's wise, right? We, we can't trust everyone with our innermost thoughts and emotions, and we probably shouldn't. But knowing who and what to give our trust to is critical for our well-being as people and as a community. The problem, though, is it's not easy to do. Trust these days, it seems harder to come by than ever. You know, we're facing as an entire society the startling lack of trust in one another and in our institutions. So much of the polarization has to do with this lack of trust between one side or the other. A lack of trust that the other person or group has your best interests at heart, or that they even care about your interests or needs. And that lack of trust, it leads to fear. This fear of the future, this fear of other people, and that fear often leads to cynicism. You know, we find ourselves hardening our hearts against that fear. And then at times, because of that, we lose the ability even to trust. So I wonder... What goes through your mind when you hear the word trust? Does it make you feel comforted? Uh, does it make you feel vulnerable? Or does it just bring up more instances of past broken trust in your life than you can even count? And if that trust has been broken, then what would it take to learn to trust again, or at least begin to trust again? You know, this week we're in week five of our Changemaker series, where we're walking our way through the events of Holy Week as we make our way towards Easter. And along the way, we're discovering the changes that Jesus made and that he wants to make in our lives, in our world. Uh, so far, Jesus has changed the way we think about leadership, about power, about religion and stress. And, and if you want to find those, you can find them on our website or our YouTube page. Uh, but today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what Jesus has to teach us about fear and cynicism because he faced both of those experiences. You know, during the, the last week of Jesus' life, he faced a level of betrayal that I just, you know, I feel like it must have gutted him. For the last three years, Jesus had poured his life, he had invested his life into a group of people. He'd invited them to follow him, he'd taught them, he'd mentored them, he'd served them, he'd spent almost every waking moment with them. This group, they began to call him master and Lord, and they swore to follow him anywhere. And then in a dark moment, they were all tested, and they were found to be untrustworthy. 
Last night, we actually looked at the night that led up to this moment. And we talked about Jesus' own personal movement from this overwhelming stress and anxiety that literally caused him to fall face down, weeping on the ground, to later on at night, this assured standing submission to God's plan for his life, whatever it will be. Now, today, what we're going to do is we're going to walk with Jesus and a few of his followers through this next dark moment in their story. Uh, a moment where their trust in each other would be put through a gauntlet of fear, violence, and broken promises. So let's read from John's account of Jesus' life, starting in uh, chapter 18 and in verse 1. John says this, When he'd finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So before we move on, let's remind ourselves of the current cultural moment that we're in in history here. The Jews, they are currently under the thumb of Rome. They are a conquered and oppressed people. They've been given minor authority by the Romans to make minor arrests, but they do not have the power of life or death. They cannot enact the death penalty themselves. So they arrive here to arrest Jesus with Roman soldiers as well as their own temple guards and officials. We're also right now on the eve of the yearly Passover celebration when the entire Jewish community celebrated their rescue from Egyptian slavery generations earlier. This is a time for them of great patriotic fervor for the entire Jewish nation. It's a time when their bondage under Rome is brought to the forefront of their national mindset. You know, imagine if the United States were conquered by another nation, but then we were still allowed to celebrate the 4th of July. You know, it would lead on that day or that weekend or the days leading up to it to this real volatile mixture of emotions and passions, wouldn't it? And Jesus has been accused of being a rabble rouser. You know, in our, in our current cultural context, that might not sound like a big deal. You know, I might, I might call my four-year-old son a rabble rouser. But under Roman subjugation, that accusation carried huge weight because Jesus' enemies were telling the authorities that Jesus was one who was stirring up trouble in a people group that the Romans considered to be particularly troubling during a time at which the nation feels strongly about their oppression. Uh, Rome had had countless problems with Jewish riots, rebellions, and supposed messianic leaders. And they're you know, well aware of this powder keg cultural moment. So they waste no time bringing this potential threat under control. A whole detachment of soldiers is sent. These are Roman soldiers, probably what is also known as a cohort or a tenth of a Roman legion. This means 600 soldiers around that mount. So, so picture for yourself, 600 trained professional soldiers living in a region known for its volatile atmosphere on the eve of a great patriotic celebration showing up in the dark to arrest this single Jewish rabbi. And they come armed for violence. And they come led by one of Jesus' own followers, a man named Judas. So with that context setting the scene, let's follow the story. Jesus, knowing what was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? So quickly before we move on, 
Please don't miss the fact that Jesus knows what is about to happen, and he actually initiates this moment. This is not simply a story about power triumphing over weakness. Let's continue to watch for Jesus' agency in the following hours as we read. So they replied to him, Jesus of Nazareth, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they actually drew back and they fell to the ground. This phrase, I am he, in the English, it looks to us like Jesus is just confirming his identity. You know, who are you looking for? Jesus. Oh yeah, that's me. And he, you know, he is doing that. And our English translators are trying to make that clear by adding in the word he. But in the original language, all Jesus says is, I am. The Jews there that night, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Because God, when he revealed himself to Moses and Israel way earlier in their history, he said this, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you to me. So again, notice Jesus' control, his power, and his agency in this moment. This declaration from him comes out with such authority and power that the crowd pulls back and people fall to the ground. For the Jews there that night, this is a clear affirmation that Jesus is claiming to be God. And it's, you know, it, it's not written in the text. But as I look at this and as I found myself wondering, I found myself thinking that Jesus might have actually been able to keep pushing to browbeat the crowd and to somehow slip out and leave if he wanted to. But instead, he actually brings them back under their feet. He invites them. He asks them again, who is it you want? Almost like he is the parent and they are the children. And, and they stand and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answers them again, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. He says, I'm Jesus. Let my disciples go. He's in full control of this moment. His whole night of prayer leading up to this has moved him from overwhelming stress and anxiety about this coming moment to a calm and assured submission of God's plan for him. The disciples, though, on the other hand, they've been sleeping. They were groggy. They were surprised. They were angry. They were frightened. And John says this, says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus would have none of this. This isn't our full topic for the day, but I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus would not confront violence with violence. He meets those who've come prepared for violence with calm, assured agency, but he does not meet them with violence. Uh, I've actually found myself intrigued by the topic of nonviolent resistance over the last couple of years. In large part, honestly, because of what I see in Jesus. And I'm not, I'm not an expert in any way in this, but one common theme that I've found in my reading is the emphasis that nonviolence as a tool of political agency is something that needs to be trained and practiced. It's a trained skill set. It's not just a natural way of thinking for most people. And Jesus here in this story, he offers us a compelling example of nonviolence as a way of political agency here in this dark moment of his life. John continues this way. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. 
So here, the story actually breaks into two different perspectives. The first follows Jesus. The second follows Peter. We're not going to follow Peter's story because otherwise we'd be here all day. But I'll summarize by saying that Peter is asked three different times by three different people the same question. And that question can be boiled down to simply this, like, you aren't one of them, are you? You know, three times he's asked, are you one of Jesus' disciples? And three times he says, no, 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 I'm not. This is Peter. This is the rock on whom Jesus said the church would be built. The young man who had promised Jesus just literally hours before he would follow him anywhere, even to death. The young man who had responded to violence with violence in the garden. He was one of Jesus' closest followers and friends. And at this moment, with, we should be honest, legitimate reasons for fear, Peter turns his back on Jesus. He breaks Jesus' trust. Jesus, on the other hand, he's moving through one sham trial after another, and we can follow along in the story in verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and teachings. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. So why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Jesus is basically saying, I've been teaching in public. Thousands have heard me across years of teaching. What are you asking me for? You know, he knew that they weren't looking for answers. They'd already decided to kill him. Now they were just looking to humiliate him. And sure enough, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face and said to him, is this the way you answer the high priest? You know, we're reminded that truth spoken to power is often met with violence. And here's Jesus just calmly asserting himself in the face of outright cynical power-mongering. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. John doesn't actually record when Jesus is brought to Caiaphas. Uh, Matthew does in, in his account of Jesus' life. And he tells us that the trial in Caiaphas' court goes the same way it did with Annas. They question Jesus. He responds truthfully. They can't find anything wrong. So they bring false witness against him. Finally, after they go twisting his words, they accuse him of blasphemy. And then they begin to mock and abuse him. Matthew tells us this. Then they spit in his face. They struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said to him, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Uh, Moving back to John's account, John says this. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the place because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Don't miss here the fact that the Jewish religious leaders want to be able to participate in the religious celebrations and feasts later in the day. For them, according to the law, entering into the house of a Gentile, a person who is not a Jew, would make them ceremonially ceremonially unclean and unable to participate. So this entire thing, this whole charade is orchestrated in a way that keeps them clean. You know, I I know you can't see the quotation marks around the word clean in my notes, but I hope you can hear the sarcasm in my voice. So when Pilate, the Roman governor, came out to them, he asks them, what charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. It's like talking to children, right? You know, Pilate says, what has he done? And they reply with, 
bad things. So Pilate tries pushing the decision back on them. He says, okay, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And they reply, we have no right to execute anyone. Again, it's like dealing with children. The problem for Pilate, though, is that it is his job, literally, to keep the peace by whatever means possible. The Roman Empire is so large, they can't possibly keep enough soldiers everywhere in it to keep a lid on every dispute. So the governor's job, his whole job security, rests on being able to keep the peace and the taxes in order, even if that requires violence to do so. So Pilate then, he takes Jesus inside and he questions him about being a king. And this to me is one of the most bizarre and fascinating points of this story because Jesus tells him, yes, he is a king, but he's not a king of this world. He says, if I was a king of this world, my followers would be in here right now fighting for me. And the Romans, to their credit, are only concerned with rebel kings in this life. They couldn't care less if you're planning to be a rebel king in some other life. So Peter goes out again, or Pilate goes out again to the Jews gathered there, and he says this, I find no basis for the charge against him, but it's your custom for me to release one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back at him. They shouted, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So this guy Barabbas, he'd been involved in a rebellion. He'd killed people most likely Romans. So you have on one hand here, you have a literal rebel who literally killed people. And on the other hand, you got Jesus talking about his kingdom in another world and how his people won't fight for him. And the Jews, who let's not forget, hate the Romans. They want the rebel back. You know, it, it's honestly likely that Barabbas was a local hero because he had fought against the Romans. But, but let's not miss the cynical hypocrisy on display here. It's actually remarkable. So Pilate takes Jesus back inside. And he actually has him flogged. He seems to think that this would be enough to appease the Jewish leaders. Flogging is not usually lethal, but it wasn't unheard of for people to die. Often what they would do is they would put, you know, chips of bone or metal in the leather thongs of the whip. And the one who was being whipped would be not just bruised, but cut. And the skin would be torn on their body. So after that, the soldiers, they twist together this crown made of thorns. They shove it down on his head. They put this mocking purple robe on him and they repeatedly slap him in the face while saying, hail to the king of Jews. And finally, they drag him back outside for the crowd to see. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. All right, so other translations recorded as this, behold the man. There's some sarcasm to this. Uh, however you translate the phrase, the intent is clear. Pilate is saying, look, look at this bloody beaten weakling. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't have anybody fighting for him. He couldn't possibly be a threat. But the religious leaders are not deterred. They push and they push and they push. And Pilate tries more than once as the story goes on to worm his way out of making a decision, but he's finally pushed into a corner. And they shouted, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asks? And the religious leaders reply with one of the most cynical moments of the entire experience. You know, for a people who hated being ruled by Rome, for people desperate to have their own king, for people who are meant to see God as their ultimate king, they reply this way, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. So finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. The level of abject 
cynical hypocrisy displayed here is shocking. You have this popular Jewish rabbi, right, who'd been, he'd been feeding and healing and teaching the common people for years. And you have this nighttime arrest outside the eyes of the public, a, a series of secret nighttime sham trials, and finally this push for the death sentence onto the Romans. Now, the, the religious leaders, they couldn't enact this punishment themselves, so they moved to force their decision onto the Roman governor. They are, in effect, taking the blame from themselves and putting it on their hated occupiers, all while reserving for themselves the good religious activities that they want to do later on in the day. So I don't know about you, but I would not fault Jesus for giving up on the whole thing of, in this moment. If it was me, if I had the power to fight back, I'm not sure what I would do, but I don't think it would be pretty. And I'm pretty sure I would be done with each and every one of these people if I managed to get out of this situation alive. I would probably be done with the whole system. I'd move out of the area. I would give up on my religion. I don't know what I would do. You know, Jesus, his friends and his disciples have abandoned him. One of the closest to him, Peter, denied even knowing him. Another Judas, who'd been with him for years, betrays him right into the hands of his abusers. The religious establishment beats him, mocks him, and shouts for his death. And the political authorities who know he is innocent, they flog him, they beat him, they spit on him, they mock him, and they eventually capitulate weakly to the mob. Every societal institution and support structure turns on him. And Jesus is left bloody, beaten, and alone. And what's coming next on the cross will be brutal. So I think, I think the question for us today is how does Jesus continue to stand up? How does he continue to stand up and face such abuse, violence, and I'm sure fear? Well, the answer is in his relationship with God. It, it's because he has this absolute trust in God the Father. We had seen it in the night leading up to this. He spends the whole night in prayer and communion with God. We watch his resolve build. We watch him stand up. Uh, you can go back and read it. He spent his whole life walking in close relationship with God. And at this moment, in one of the lowest of his life, that relationship is what sustained him. When every other institution and person failed Jesus, God was found to be trustworthy. Now, clearly not because of what was going on. We're not saying God is trustworthy here because he somehow made it all better or rescued him. It wasn't actually about his circumstances for Jesus. It was about who God is. You know, a few hours later, while Jesus is on the cross, he utters these now famous words. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at first glance, if you just read that, it looks like Jesus has been abandoned by God. But here's the catch. He's not speaking off the cuff here. He's actually quoting from Hebrew scripture, Psalm 22 to be exact, which begins this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. I would encourage you to read the whole psalm. Uh, find time to look at Psalm 22 and read the whole thing, because the pain expressed by the writer is familiar to any one of us who's ever found ourselves wondering where God was in our darkest moments. The psalmist feels abandoned by God. Listen to this. He says, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. 
Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet, as the psalmist continues, as he continues writing, his perspective shifts and it shifts towards God's faithfulness and the author's eventual trust in God. Near the end, he declares this. He says, for he, speaking of God, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. This, this is the psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. Pain and confusion, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Followed by God's faithfulness and Jesus' trust in his Father, if you know where he's pulling this from. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. The incredible privilege that we have over Jesus' followers in this moment is we can keep reading. We can look at the rest of the story. We can find out if Jesus' trust was well-placed, and it was. You know, this, this moment here, against all odds, it was not the end of Jesus' story. And whatever you are going through, or whatever you've been through in your past, it's not the end of your story. Uh, trust, you know, especially when we're in situations that breed fear or cynicism, it can be so hard. And we all have to make decisions constantly about where we put our trust. So, you know, after that dark story, let me lighten the mood for one minute and just give you an example. You know, I, like many of you, have always been a little bit nervous around heights. I don't like getting near the edge of a cliff unless I have to. And, you know, I feel that sense of my stomach kind of jumping up. Uh, but I've also always had a love of activities that bring with them a little bit of risk and a lot of adrenaline. So in 2006, those two realities came smashing together on a small plane in Northern California as I prepared to jump out of it with two of my friends. Skydiving had always been a lifelong dream of mine. And as the plane climbed to our jump altitude, I found myself sitting there in my seat, amazed actually at how little fear I felt. I had felt significantly more fear cliff jumping into a lake earlier that year or rock climbing than I felt in this moment. And I found myself confused by that because this was way more dangerous. But as I sat there, after a quick moment of introspection, I realized it wasn't because I was so confident in myself. You know, I'd, I'd been given a 30-minute video training before boarding the plane. I knew very little about skydiving. My calm attitude had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with the professional licensed skydiver that I was literally attached to. I was going on a tandem jump, and that meant I was attached to an instructor who guided every aspect of the day. So as we shuffled our way up to the door and looked out, he tapped me on the shoulder, I brought my head back, I crossed my arms, and he took care of the rest. As he pushed us and we tumbled out the door, he got us leveled out, he got us pointed in the right direction. As we began our free fall, he tapped me on the shoulder and I brought my arms out and he got us into position for this amazing picture that I still have framed in my office. And as we got closer to the ground, he actually tapped me again. And then he pulled the chute, he guided us to our landing zone, and he put us so softly on the ground that I barely even got a grass stain. The whole experience was incredible. It was one of the most exhilarating things I've ever done. And yet it, you know, it caused less fear in me than many less risky activities that I've done. All because of my trust in the professional instructor. So, I don't know if you've made a tandem skydive jump before, but we've all put our trust in pilots or bus drivers or the chef who prepares the food at the restaurant. The key is who or what 
you're putting your trust in. And, and I recognize, even as I tell this story, that skydiving or flying on a commercial airline, uh, they're not the same levels of intimate trust that we often struggle the most with in many areas of our lives. But the same principle of who you're putting your ultimate trust in remains. There's so many reasons, legitimate reasons, to look at the people and the institutions around us with cynicism and fear. But what Jesus does is he shows us that even in those moments of legitimate cynicism or legitimate fear, in those moments of brokenness, he shows us where to put our eyes and who to put our ultimate trust in. You know, in the God who never changes. In the God who, through Jesus, has been through suffering and abuse and the loss of trust that we experience. And in the God who walks faithfully with us through both our darkest moments and our brightest moments. So, Back to that word trust and what it makes you feel. You might need to just start by putting a tiny little bit of trust in God. You know, just opening yourself up just a little bit to see what happens. Uh, one easy way that you can start is with the Jesus prayer. This is what's called a breath prayer, meaning you say the first half while breathing in and the second half while breathing out. Both the prayer and the breathing are to help you calm yourself and to help you reorient your thinking. And you can repeat it to yourself multiple times out loud or silently, and it goes simply like this. Breath in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. Breath out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, several years ago, I was struggling with anxiety and some pretty intense insomnia. So I spent some time with a professional counselor who was also a Christian, and he taught me this prayer along with a bunch of other very helpful things. And I began reciting the prayer to myself, you know, a few times before bed and a few times to start the day. And I still today find myself going back to it regularly as a reminder of where to keep my eyes and my ultimate focus. It helps me as I breathe in and breathe out. It helps me as I remind myself of who I am and who God is to keep my focus on Jesus. Because Jesus changes the way we look at trust. When every other institution and person fails us, God is found to be trustworthy. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this chance to, to look at the story of Jesus. And I thank you for the fact that you, you let us see into this incredibly dark moment in his life this moment where every institution and every person failed him. Because it's a moment that I think many of us can identify with. So Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the way that it was recorded for us to be able to process and walk with him through the pain. And we thank you for the psalmist who I think echoes what so many of us feel in so many places in our life. But more than that, I thank you for the fact that Jesus went through all of this so that we would have a chance to know where to keep our eyes and our trust. Lord, for those in our congregation, for those who are listening, including myself, who find it difficult sometimes to trust, would you just help us to open ourselves a little bit to you? Would you give us wisdom for the wise places to open or keep ourselves closed in our, in our lives, in our interactions? And would you help us to slowly, incrementally build our trust in you? I ask this in the name of the power of Jesus. Amen.